Well, as the children are making their way out, if you would uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Um, it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Matt O'Sullivan. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. So we're going to pick up in our third week in our Advent Sermon Series. We're looking at the promise of Christ in the book of Genesis. So again, if you could turn to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look at a little bit from Genesis 6 and also from chapters 8 and 9 this morning. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And before we, we dive into this morning's text, it's worth us remembering what's going on so far in, in the story and in this sermon series. And as, as you hear, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, you might be like, so Advent in Genesis, huh? Like that's a little bit unique. We're often used to Christmas sermons coming from Matthew and Luke, the Gospels that talk especially about Christ's birth. But the, the beauty and the significance of studying the Advent of Christ in the book of Genesis is that it's showing us that everything we celebrate at Christmas time was all according to this intricate, massive plan that spanned the millennia, that God poured all of his purpose and intentionality into what he did in Christ at that first Christmas and beyond. It's showing us just how much work and preparation God put and continues to put into the redemption of his people. And so far we've seen that Christ's first advent, his first coming to earth when he was born as a human baby, was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 in the immediate aftermath of the fall. We saw that two weeks ago in Genesis 3. And in the midst of, of that devastation, as, as the curse goes out, God speaks to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam. And significantly, he does not curse Adam and Eve, but only the serpent and the ground. And the fact that he doesn't curse those who bear his image reminded us that he is not giving up on those who have rebelled against him. That though Adam and Eve turned against God and, and practically spat in his face, he promised them that he would work out redemption. And he said, I will put enmity not between me and you, but between your seed, Eve, and the seed of the serpent. And that one day there would be someone who would come from the line of Eve, and that person would be Christ, and he would crush the head of the serpent. Though his heel would be bruised by the serpent, he would stand victorious and redeem God's people. And then we saw how that promise played out in Genesis 4. We saw the, the strife between Cain and Abel. And the amazing thing is that Eve had these great hopes for Cain, her firstborn son. She hoped that he would be the promised seed who would right away crush the serpent. But rather than, than crushing the serpent, Cain turned and lifted up his hand against his brother and struck him down in murder. Because when Cain's offering was, was rejected by God because his worship was hollow, his heart was far from the Lord, rather than turning and doing what was right as God invited Cain to do, he tried to eliminate the competition and he killed his own brother. And then, unlike his parents, Cain was, in fact, cursed by God, and he was condemned to a life of wandering, though God spared his life and put a mark upon him that the same murderous impulse that led him to kill his brother would not be done to him as well. And we saw then how Cain's line continued just to degenerate in violence and selfishness, culminating with Lamech, a man who, who took for himself two wives and boasted to them of his bloodlust and his violence, the very thing that ought to have been Cain's line's shame Lamech turns into his own glory. And yet hope was not lost because we saw that there were those who came from another son that God gave to Adam and Eve, Seth, and that people from this line called upon the name of the Lord in faith, and that God's promise would stand. Satan had not been victorious. He had not thwarted God's plan to redeem his people. And so then, of course, we come to today's part of the story, and it's a part of the story that many of us know very well, um, or at least are very familiar with, and that's the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. 
And it's, it's a fascinating story, and it's one that um, there's a great Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins who has a great little bit about this story. And he says, you know, we're so familiar with this story, and we, we paint pictures of it on, like, nursery walls and things like that. And you'll have, like, smiling giraffes and a boat and the rainbow. And he said, it's funny because you, only, you don't ever see, like, the full just weight of what's going on in the story. He's like, you know, if I were going to paint this on my kid's nursery, I would have these big rocks there, and people would come in and be like, what's on the rocks? He's like, oh, those are terrified people waiting for the waters to wipe them away. You know, that's, that's what's actually happening here. You're like, oh, man, like, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't actually paint that on your child's nursery. But then you might be thinking, like, okay, so by extension, I was starting to warm up to this idea of Advent in Genesis, but what is the flood, a story that seems very dark and very full of judgment, what does that have to do with Christmas? And that question is right because so often the way we think of Christmas, the way we think of Christmas cheer and Christmas spirit and Hallmark movies and Christmas specials and Buddy the Elf and all that kind of stuff, this, this story just is way out of alignment with that. And it throws us for a loop. But if you stop and think about it for a moment, that shows you how often so many of the ways we celebrate Christmas tend to lead us to, to overlook or, or forget about our need for Christ, our need for him to come the very reason we celebrate Christmas. And so as we're diving into this text, it's worth pausing for a moment and just asking ourselves, how is the corruption of the world weighing upon you this Advent season? And I don't just mean the, the, the stress that comes with you know, making all of your hospitality events happen or, or getting every item on, on someone's wish list. That, that's stressful, that's busyness. But so often that's just skating on thin ice. What's beneath the surface? where you feel the weight of the brokenness of this world, the weight of the sin and the evil, all that was unleashed in the fall, all that we saw um, just unleashed by Cain's hand upon his brother, where is that weighing upon you this Advent season? It could be in separation from, from family, whether just by, by distance due to calling. It could be due to a, a longing for reconciliation that hasn't come. It could be due to loss of life or provision. But for all of us, there are ways that we just feel this world is not as it should be. I've been thinking a lot about that and the, and the way that happens at Christmas time in particular um, because of my desk calendar, ironically. My mom's always gotten us three kids a calendar for Christmas, and I like the desk calendars because as a kid, I just like tearing the paper. I don't, don't know why, but it was fun. And she got me last year one for uh, uh, Close to Home, which is kind of like a far side type comic. So it's really cynical, kind of sardonic, and... Um, really biting at times. And on Monday, I turned the page. I just finished, or I was finishing up my seminary semester and thinking about this sermon. And lo and behold, it shows this scene where there are these carolers at someone's door. And they're quoting Luke too. They say, peace on earth, goodwill to man. But they're so swept up into their own singing, they don't realize the guy they're caroling is a robber. Like he's got a black bandana on, he's got this huge sack of loot. And he's standing there kind of like, well, you guys know who I am? And then off to the side where the carolers can't see, there's this elderly woman bound and gagged against the wall and like her canes across the floor. Like it's a, it's a dark comic. And it really stuck with me. I was like, that is so often how people think of Christmas is they hear us say these things and sing these songs and put uh, nice phrases on cards, even biblical phrases. But if we don't stop and pause and recognize our need for Christ and recognize the significance behind all of that, it can seem like empty promises shout it to the void. And if we ignore the weight of that corruption, we can forget the true beauty of Christmas. It's not just Jesus' birthday. It's the day that God recognizes, no, I know the weight you feel, and I've come to do something about it. When we start thinking about it like that, 
as we're going to find out, then the flood story has a lot to do with Christmas because it shows us what God sees when he looks upon the world. It shows us how he interacts with the world. It shows us how he is preparing the way for Christmas to happen, for Christ to come to relieve us of that weight. And so what I hope we'll discover this morning as we study these chapters in Genesis is that amidst the corruption of the world, God faithfully preserves the seed of Eve until the victorious advent of Christ. And so let's, let's jump right in and not waste any time. Let's jump into chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 of this chapter. So if you would, hear the word of the Lord and follow along with me this morning. Now when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, this is one of those bits of the Old Testament where there are a million little things we could just dig into and explore for hours. Um, so we're going to have to move over some things that, that you may have questions about, and these are great things to talk about um, at, together as God's people. But briefly, just to set the stage so we can see the, the main bit of the story here, the conflict between the seeds, um, just to note a few things going in. Um, who are the Nephilim? Well, the Nephilim, that, that word comes from the Hebrew word nephal, which means to fall. So these are the fallen ones. And the text doesn't tell us where they came from. It doesn't tell us um, exactly who they were. It's using them to mark a point in time, a point in history. It's saying back in those days, the Nephilim roamed the land, and they were these big, bad warrior dudes, guys you would not want to mess with. They were powerful. It would essentially be like saying, you know, back in those days, knights roamed the land and rode horseback, or back in those days, cowboys and bandits were in the West. In saying that, I'm not really telling you everything about those people. I'm telling you about a point in time in history. And so as Moses is telling God's people about the Nephilim, he's saying, you know, back in these days, when these events happened, the Nephilim roamed the land. And the other question that, that immediately jumps out is, okay, so what's up with these 120 years? And a lot of times people have thought, well, maybe, maybe that means that God's saying, you know, no one will live past 120 years. And if that's so, we have to put a huge asterisk on that right away because there are people right after this in Genesis who are going to live longer than 120 years. And so another reading that a lot of people think is that this is actually God saying that in 120 years' time, I will send judgment. I, my spirit, it's not just that my spirit will not abide, but if you have the ESV, you'll see a footnote. That word might also mean contend. And so what God is saying is that as this evil of man multiplies on the earth, I'm not going to let it go unchecked forever. I will deal with it. And so some people think that 120 years is saying what from the time God said that until the time the flood comes is 120 years. And notice then the grace of God giving his world, which is spiraling out of control, so much time to come and to turn to him. And again, there are, there are other things we could explore with those themes, but the important thing is seeing then how this is setting the stage for the two main players in this story, 
the sons of God and the daughters of men. And, and as with everything else in this passage, there are a lot of different ways to read it. Some people think the sons of God are, are angels, in this case, fallen angels, demons who have strayed from God and who are now intermarrying with human women. And some people even say, like, oh, that's where the Nephilim came from. They're these, like, demonic, human, hybrid, superspecies warrior guys. Again, the, the text, though, doesn't seem to indicate that. What seems to be happening here is the sons of God are those who, back in chapter 4, were calling upon the name of the Lord in faith. They are the line of the woman. They are God's people. And the daughters of man are um, women on the side of Cain, on the seed of the serpent. And what's happening here is that now the seeds are mingling. And Satan is again trying to thwart God's plan. And we can see that even though Satan is not mentioned by name in this story, his fingerprints are all over what's happening. We can detect that for one big reason. If you go back to Genesis 3, you go back to the fall, and you look at how Satan comes after Adam and Eve, he gets them to doubt God's character and to doubt God's word. And as he's talking to Eve, he gets her to gaze upon the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she saw that it was good, that it was attractive, that it was beautiful, and she took it. And that same exact pattern is precisely what happens here. The sons of God look and they saw that the daughters of man were attractive. It's the same exact word used back in Genesis 3. And they took any as they chose for their wives. So we see just as Satan was getting Eve to doubt God's provision, now Satan is getting mankind, the seed of the woman, to, to just focus on whatever their hearts want. And he's getting them to just go after um, women who would draw them away because they're not of God's line. They're of the line of the serpent. And if you know anything about the history of God's people, this is the problem of intermarriage between the Israelites and the Canaanites. That will be a problem that plagues them throughout the Bible. That they would not just outright rebel against God, but instead would be distracted and drawn away. And it would be a more subtle type of rebellion, less overt than back in Genesis 3. And as this is happening, the result of it is that as God's people get swept away from faith in him and get focused more on whatever their own hearts want, their wickedness multiplies on the earth. They were called to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and reflect God's glory, and instead they turn inward to themselves, doing whatever their hearts want. When it says they took as their wives any they chose, it's indicating perhaps that they're reflecting what Lamech did, and not just taking one wife, but taking more than one wife any as they chose, their wives, it's plural there. And so then in verse five, God looks out upon his world and he sees the results of what is going on. And whereas once God had looked out upon his world and he said, all is very good, now he looks and sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And as you read this, that, that verse, verse five, it's hard to read because there's just so much there. It's the thoughts, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's just repetitively driving home the fact that man's heart has just become a fountainhead of evil and rebellion. And it's amazing to note how God responds to this. Because yes, our God is a God of justice, and yes, he is going to judge the evil here. But it's really important that we pay particular attention to the language that's used. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He was sorry he had made them. And that language can startle us at first because we immediately think like, oh man, is God doing what we do when we, you know, something doesn't work out? And he's like, well, that didn't work. I, uh, I'm gonna have to try something else now. Is he changing his mind? Is he caught off guard? Did he not see this coming? 
The answer, of course, is no, absolutely not. Our God knows all. He knew what would happen. He knows what is going to happen even after this. And he does not change. He does not change in his character. He is good and he is true and he is righteous and he is perfect and he is holy. And yet precisely because of those things, because he is a good God, because he is just, because he is holy, when he looks upon evil like this, it grieves him. That is a good thing. It is a good thing that our God is not indifferent, that he doesn't just look out upon the world of evil and be like, hmm, okay. The fact that he, he looks out upon it and it causes him grief, not in the way it would cause us grief. Um, his emotion is a divine type of emotion. It doesn't come upon him the way we can't control our emotions. And yet with God, it's not as though he doesn't care or that he's passive or indifferent. He looks out upon this and he knows this is not what I intended. And that's so important for the way we think about God's sovereignty and the problem of evil. This is a question um, that just spirals into a million other questions. But as we look at it, and as the world tends to think about this issue, they say, okay, if God is good, and God is all-powerful, then God would want to and God would be able to do something about evil. But all this evil exists in the world. I mean, God himself sees it. He looks out and sees the wickedness of man. So if evil still exists, then Maybe there's no God, or maybe he's not one of those things. Maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not all-powerful. But what we see from this part of Genesis is that there's so much more to the equation than that. It's not just a simple um, proof with two points and a conclusion. We also see it's not just that God is good and all-powerful, but that evil grieves him. And then also what we see is that we are the source of that evil, and so if God wanted to just get rid of evil like we want to when we set up that proof, he could just and make it go away. But to do that, there's no more us. And so what we see here is this is a very complex thing. The Lord is holy and he's perfect and he will not stand for evil. And yet he's equally unwilling to abandon those who bear his image, even though they themselves are the very source of the evil that causes him so much grief. And so as we look at what he plans to do, he says, I will blot out man who I have, whom I have created, and yet not entirely. He will save a remnant. His judgment comes still with the grace of redemption. And that's complex, and again, it doesn't answer every question we have, but in such a world as which we live, we want a God who is not gonna try to boil everything down to simple math, but who recognizes this is a com complex mess, and yet I can come and I can make things right in the way only I can. And I can redeem you from the mess you have made. And so we see then that even as God resolves to send a flood to blot out, blot out almost all life, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the idea of finding favor, especially for us in the Protestant tradition, we're like, whoa, like, is, is that saying that, that Noah did something to make God like him? No, what that's saying is that God showed Noah grace. The word favor there is the same Hebrew word for grace. And so it's saying that God, as he looks out on the world, he also sees Noah and he says, you will be the one through whom I preserve a remnant. And when it says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that's language that we'll see soon appears again with Abraham. And he walked with God as had Enoch before him. He was someone who still called upon the name of the Lord in faith. And so God says, you will be the remnant. You will build an ark. You will preserve life. And I will not abandon my creation entirely. And so as Sidney Gradanus summarizes, he says, the earth no longer honored its creator king. It was no longer a manifestation of the good kingdom of God. It grieved God to see this corruption of his beautiful creation. 
The heavenly judge has seen the evidence of diabolical evil, and he pronounces sentence, but God's judgment is infused with redeeming grace. God intends to save a remnant. And as we, as we look at this part of the story, and as we think about the significance of it, and we think about our own lives, I, I do think it's worth us pausing and asking, what do you find attractive in life? This is a great time of the year to ask that question because you've revealed that all over the place. When someone asks you, what do you want for Christmas? Or you look at what's on your Pinterest board, or you look at what's on all those wish lists on various websites, Amazon, Bed Bath Beyond, wherever you make your wish list, you see what you find attractive in life. And then why do you find those things attractive? And what is that revealing about your heart? Because when we think about the way Satan attacks the seed of the, the woman this time, it wasn't like he did back in Genesis 3. Again, it's more subtle. He's not just coming at humanity this time and causing them to directly doubt. He's distracting them through their desires and their imagination and what their hearts want. And for us in our day and age where the mantra so often is, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it's right. We have to stop and ask sometimes, what do I find attractive and why? And where is that leading me? And that's not just a matter of our sexuality. Because so often when we think of attraction, one of, the, one of the errors of our time is we think attraction just has to do with those issues. And certainly it does. But it has to do with the kind of life you want to live, with the kind of status you want. I can find a certain type of automobile attractive. Like I said, like, oh man, like that's, a, that's a new Honda Accord. It's paint's not peeling. Like I, I'm drawn to that. Why? Why? My car drives just great and it goes quick. It's good. Like what draws me to that? That's not neutral. And again, for, for those of us who are younger and, and, and are to our students, you are going to hear the world in their entertainment and all around you tell you, follow your heart. But this text tells us you cannot trust your heart because it is broken. And that is going to feel painful to be told that. But the point of this story is that there is one whose attractions, whose desires are for what is truly good, that is God. You can tell what God finds attractive by what he grieves in this passage. Notice that if God grieves the wickedness of man, then what does he find attractive? What does he long for? He longs for his people to do what is right. He longs for his people to be with him, not to be defined by wayward hearts, not to be defined by rebellion and distance and separation from him, but to be defined by life in his presence. And so when we ask ourselves that question, we're not gonna come out unscathed. We can look at all sorts of things that reveal to us our hearts, our internet browsing history, where we put our time, how much time is on our smartphones, the kind of people we hang out with. It's all showing us what we long for in our hearts. And everywhere we're going to see the, the marks and stains of sin. But the good news is that the, the Lord in his heart has purposed to deal with evil and to do so in a way that he would save his people. That he would come and he would bring us back home to him. That's the beauty of even the flood story, and we see that pattern continue on to the advent of Christ. Now let's uh, jump back in. We're going to jump um, all the way ahead. We're actually, you, you might be like, oh man, if this were a movie, like you just skipped all the action in the middle. It'd be like watching the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring and then watching the last 20 minutes of Return of the King. If that reference means anything to you, that was deep nerddom. Um, but we're actually not talking about the actual flood or the ark this morning. Um, we're looking at the purposes of God before the flood and then after the flood as all things are connected into the story of redemption. So we're going to jump back or jump ahead and dive back into the text, picking up at chapter 8, verse 20. And here we're going to see humanity protected and the covenant continued. So if you would, again, read along with me. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And the Lord blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So again, as we pick up back in this part of the story, we see God kept his word. He preserved a remnant. And as Noah and his family and the animals emerge from the ark, the floodwaters have receded. Notice what he does first. He turns to the Lord in worship. And he he echoes Cain and Abel's worship. But unlike Cain, he worships like Abel. He worships in faith and he trusts God. I mean, if, if I were Noah coming out of the ark, I would have been like, should I really be, be making a sacrifice right now? Like, this is all that's left. And yet he trusts God to continue to provide, to do what he said he would do, to save the earth, to refill it. And so he worships God, and he draws near. And then you notice as God responds to Noah's worship, he says he will never again curse the ground because of man. He promises never to send such a catastrophic flood again. And that's significant, because if you just witness the awesome power of God in that way, you might be thinking like, so if, if we get way off the tracks again, like, could this become a recurring thing? Like, could, could God just decide like, yep, time for another flood, like you guys are getting a little too crazy? God says, no, no, seed time and harvest, day and night, cold and heat, these things, these patterns of creation, I will preserve. And then we notice though, that what God focuses on in particular is life. Is life. And again, that is significant because it would be very easy to walk away from this and think, this is a God of death. He just wiped out everything except a boat full of creatures and eight human beings. But again, no, that was not to wipe out all life because God is not a God of life or a God of death, but it is because he was preserving true life through the line of the woman. He was protecting them from the, line, from the, the schemes and wiles of the devil. And it's also worth noting that God, the reason he says he will not flood the earth again is he says because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And again, you might be like, well, wasn't that the reason for the flood in the first place? So did he not, did he think like the flood would deal with evil and then he was wrong and he was just trying stuff out? Well, no, again, remember, the purpose of the flood was to protect the seed. And so God recognizes, though, that evil is now a part of his creation. And so he makes these provisions to be with his people. Things have changed. He reiterates the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, but then he immediately turns and says, one, there will now be fear and dread between you and the animals, the creatures you were meant to rule over. That that reign, that dominion that God had made for man to have is, is now broken and ruptured. I think it's fascinating to think about what it would have been like for Adam and Eve before 
the harmony of, of creation would have been broken. And then God says, you know, I gave them plants, every, every tree except one, of course, and now I give you everything. I give you all of the creatures. And he says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. And that's not so much a text about like, okay, can you have your steak rare? Um, can it be red? Like, that's not what that's about. The point here is the emphasis on the life. God is saying, as I give you these animals for food, don't take it casually. Do not take life casually. You know, that text, um, we, we don't know if that means, like, okay, when, when Christ returns in the new heaven, new earth, like, are we going to be able to eat meat then? Um, I don't know. I know probably most Americans hope so because we love bacon. Um, I hope so because otherwise I'll have to have a different job. And if we're not allowed to eat meat in the new heavens, new earth, then, like, you all are wrong and Chick-fil-A is not catering, <laughs> despite what Babylon B says. But the point, the point, the emphasis is on life. And we see God's care for life culminate in what he says about those who bear his image and their lives. And this is a direct response to what happened with Cain and Abel. When it says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. That word, fellow man, is a Hebrew word, ach, which is brother. So this is going right back to Cain and Abel. And God is saying, murder will not be ignored. I will not overlook that. You are made in my image and you are important to me and I, I value you and I cherish you. And so as we look at this part of the text, we see that God is not blind to the way things have changed. He is providing provisions for his people in order that they can continue to be fruitful and multiply. Hence, he said that at the beginning of what he's saying to Noah. And then after he makes this provision against murder, he says it again, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth because he is a God of life. He is a God who values his creation. And so as we consider these things on this Lord's Day Sabbath, we should ask ourselves, how does God's care and concern for those who bear his image affect you and the way you treat others? And, and I truly mean that word, how does it affect you? Because so often we can feel, we can say one thing about the doctrine of, of man, like, oh yeah, of course humans bear God's image, but then inside about ourselves, we can feel very lowly about ourselves, and have more of a worm theology. We can, we can say, oh, yes, you know, of course we bear God's image, but I am defined by this sin I committed in my past. Well, for me, nothing goes right. I feel alone this Advent. Everyone else is talking about Christmas parties and time with family, but I feel alone. I don't feel as though I am one upon whom God cares and, and pours out his grace and his love. And so it ought to comfort us beyond comparison that God values our lives so perfectly. And if we have objections in our heart, and we're like, okay, if he cares so much about what's done to us, what's done to those of us who bear his image, then why this and why that? Why did he let this person I know suffer like that? Or even be killed like that? Or die like that? Why did he let this happen to me where someone brutalized or objectified or abused me in this way? You know, where was he then? And I don't dare try to explain away any suffering any of us have endured. Um, that would just be arrogant and insensitive. And we all have those kind of things that haunt us where we're like, Lord, just why? What is the point behind that? I know, I know that's what you said, but I'm having trouble seeing it here. And the amazing thing for us to remember then is that God didn't just say, okay, you know, murder is not good and I will require a reckoning. He didn't just issue a law and then retreat up to his footstool in heaven and stay there. But ultimately, he sends Christ to come and to deliver us not only from the evil done to us, but from the evil done by us. 
And that incoming Christ himself is going to bear the very kind of violence and evil and sin that God is prohibiting here. Christ himself will be brutally treated. Christ himself will be abused. Christ himself will be murdered and will, be know, and will know what it is like to be all alone, stripped and left for dead, abandoned by all. And he will do that to redeem us. And so although we may have questions about things in our lives or things in the lives of those we know and love, the one thing that is not up for grabs and that it, we need not question is God's character. We know our God cares for us. We know our God loves us. We know our God values us because he has made us in his image. We may not always be able to see how that plays out in the circumstances of our lives. And this Advent, it may be weighing heavy on you in particular. And what the devil wants you to do is to mix those questions. Sin and the flesh and the enemy, they all try to get us to confuse those questions and to get us to mix our circumstances with God's character. But those are different things. God's character stands. He's a God of life. He's a God of love. He's a God of care and compassion. And though we may not always be able to see that reflected in our circumstances, he calls us to wait upon him, to look upon him, and to trust him, to trust that he is with us, and that this life that he promises to his people in Christ is what he will have for us in the end. So let's turn back to the text and pick up in chapter 9, verse 8, and read on through verse 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so again, here, you'll notice this text, this part of the story is very repetitive. And so the, the way the Hebrews would write their literature, they didn't have rhyme or meter the way we would. They weren't Shakespearean or anything like that. If they want to emphasize something, they're going to repeat it. And what is emphasized over and over and over again here is that this is a covenant God has made with all the world. Notice the absolute language. This is for all times, all future generations, with all creatures, man, beast, fish, birds, everything. God is making this promise that he will sustain the world. It will not fade away. The, the stage of history will continue so that God can work out his plan for redemption. And then he gives a sign both for us and for himself to remind us of that covenant. And the sign he gives is the rainbow. And it's a really interesting sign here because think about the way, I'm not a scientist, but just put simply, think about the way a rainbow happens. You have the, the rain clouds, the thunder clouds, and through them light shines, and you have this dazzling prismatic display of colorful light. It's beautiful. But it's light shining through something that can bring devastation and darkness. And in the same way, you think about the flood. 
And you think about God's judgment, and you think about God's grace, and you think about everything that happens here, you have the thunderclouds, the dark thunderclouds of judgment rolling in upon the earth, unleashing the flood, wiping out all life save eight humans and a boat full of critters. And yet God's grace, the light of God's grace shines through this event, and it just blazes forth in this amazing display of his love and his redemptive purposes throughout all history for all future generations. It's an amazing sign then that it displays how out of darkness, out of judgment, God's love and grace can shine and bring beauty and life and redemption. And the amazing thing too is that it's not just a sign for us to remember, but it's a sign for God. And it's not as though God's gonna be up in heaven and one day forget like, oh man, I guess I should hold off on this flood I was about to send again because I said I wouldn't do that. He's not forgetful. It's rather, it's sort of like when you have a friend or a significant other and you're, you're going to be away from one another for a long time, you give them a picture or you give them some sort of token to remember each other by and you're like, hey, here's this so you can remember me. And they put that on their desk and so they can look at it all the time. Not because, again, they're gonna forget about you, but because you're important to them. And so in the same way, when God looks upon the rainbow, it's him remembering how valuable his creation is. As O. Palmer Robertson puts it in his classic book, The Christ of the Covenants, he says, it is no accident that the throne of the righteous judge of heaven and earth is depicted as having a rainbow about the throne like an emerald to look upon. That's from Revelation 4.3. What a joy it should then be to the true sharer of God's covenantal grace in Christ that the sign and seal of God's good purposes arches the place of his final disposition. In other words, God remembers how much he cares for his people and he has put the very sign of that covenant right in front of his eyes in heaven because he cares for this world, because he has promised to sustain it. And he set all of that up back in Genesis 9 so that coming all the way through the story of the scriptures, Christ would come and would redeem God's people. And so for us, as we reflect upon that, it's, we should ask, what signs of God's goodness and faithfulness from this past year can you reflect upon and give thanks for? You know, for you, it might even be the rainbow. Maybe that, maybe there was a moment in your life where you're driving along and it was raining and suddenly there's a rainbow and you're just reminded of this story from scripture and you're like, God is good. He cares for me and he cares for his world. Or maybe it's the size of the new covenant. They're just witnessing the, one of the many baptisms we've seen in our church this past year. Baptisms of people from all stages of life. You're reminded, our God is good and he saves. And he's working in the lives of his people. Or it could be the sign of the Lord's Supper. Just remembering that the brokenness and the sacrifice of Christ so we could have newness of life in the spirit. It could be a sign just through the goodness of God's people in your life as you've been surrounded by a church family that loves you or by reconciliation. There are all sorts of ways God is at work in our lives and we would do well in this season that's often asked, what do you want? To pause and say, well, no, what has God already given? How has he been good this past year? And even if that question is tough to answer for you, let's wrestle with it together as family. And in that experience, a sign of God's goodness and faithfulness and giving us one another as a church family to love each other, to bear one another's burdens and to support one another in Christ. And so as we're wrapping up this morning then, we see that Genesis 6, 1 through 10 and then 8, 20 through 9, 17 teaches us that God is faithful to preserve the seed of Eve until the victorious advent of Christ despite the corruption of the world. That no matter how far gone the world seems to us, God has not given up on his people. Number two, we see God's care for his image bearers should lead us to love others. We are Christians, and we believe that humans are made in God's image. Therefore, there is no one you meet 
who is worthless. There is no one we meet that we are ever justified just to be like, I hate people. That person drives me nuts. And you think about the way Christ takes that commandment about murder and he drives it into our hearts and he talks about our anger. And I've thought, so preparing for this, I was like, man, how many people have I killed in my heart this past year because I was angry and impatient with them at work um, and elsewhere in life? And just recognizing, you know, God is, he cares for us. Though he would have every reason to not care for us, he values us because he's made us in his image. And that should shape us deeply in how we interact with this world. And then lastly, God gives us many signs of his goodness and his faithfulness in order to encourage us. And so we ought to be a people who are quickly looking in the world, looking for God to be on the move in our lives and in each other's lives so that we can give thanks and we can worship him. And it's really important and then circling back to what we were saying at the beginning. We feel the weight of the brokenness in the world. But God is in this world working in our lives. And so he calls us to remember his goodness, to remember his faithfulness, to be on the lookout. Where do you see him at work? And if there's someone through whom God has just been sweet to you this past year, you ought to thank that person. Say, you know, the Lord has been good to me through you. I don't know if you recognize the significance of that because for that person, that, you have no idea how much that might mean to them and how just to know like the Lord is in my life using me for someone else can lift them in their spirits and be a source of comfort and joy. And no matter what we feel just weighing us down this Advent season, we were reminded then that in Christ we have a foundation, we have a rock that we stand upon that will withstand whatever the world throws our way. We will not be swept away in judgment. We will not be swept away when the rains and the floods come if we build our house upon the rock that is Christ because he cares for us and he has come and he has come to bring us home to God and he will not let us go, come what may. Amen? So let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we give you thanks that you are good. Lord, that in your word, as we, as we just sweep through this story, Lord, and see you at work, in a story that is perhaps very familiar, and now we're looking at it through a different lens, thinking about how it foretells your coming in Christ. Lord, we give you thanks for this time. We give you thanks that your spirit is at work in this world, at work in our hearts. Lord, we pray that this Advent season, you would help us to be a people who know your goodness, Lord. Help us not just to be those who skate really fast upon thin ice and be busy, but help us to be a people who are aware of your presence and your grace and your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for how good you've been to it, Lord, amidst what, what has been, uh, in, in many respects, a very dark year. Um, Lord, as, as we have all felt the weight of death and sickness and brokenness, Lord, in, in different ways, but Lord, you are still here and you are still with us and you call us Sunday after Sunday, Lord, as you hold this world fast as you promised. What a gift, Lord, that you would do that over thousands of years to send Christ and then thousands of years later, here we are. And you're still doing that. You're still loving your people. You're still pouring out your grace. And so, oh God, would that not be lost on us this Lord's day? Would you help us to celebrate that together as a church family, Lord, and as, as individuals and as friends and family together? Lord, would this be a season where we, where we remember, Lord, and that the sweetness of your grace is fast upon our lips, that we may go out into the world and be the aroma, not of death, but Lord of life, life in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.